Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date uh, is in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. Well, what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, Nord VPN, of course. You see, it's Nord Nordic. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's I get it. Moving on. With one click, NordVPN can change my device's virtual location so I can access all the content I need when I'm abroad. I can now watch poor things, whether in London or Paris. Why even wait until you're on holiday? You can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries, unlocking all this content for less than a price of a Pano Raisin a month. Pano Raisin. Pano Raisin. To take our huge discount huge. off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. Our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan. Now, back to the show. Oh, well, hello and welcome. <laughs> welcome to another take from your friends at Enbro Running Club, Copenhagen, whose microphone and equipment I am trying to use. Hello, Mark. You do sound like you're broadcasting from a sports bunker. Yeah. Can you give it's, us some ball by ball? Well, uh, I'm, I'm stuck in Copenhagen slightly longer than I was expecting to for various reasons, but I bring you exciting news that Depeche Mode played last night and um, on the walk to nursery pick up, pick up Jack, grandchild one, we walked past the entire many, many thousands of people who wanted to go and see Depeche Mode in Copenhagen. And they had clearly traveled from Sweden and Norway and Germany and everywhere. And they were all looking very, very happy. That's the first exciting piece of information, rock and roll news I have. And the other is a Brexit benefit Mark, I okay. bring you news of a Brexit benefit. Hang on, just, uh, so this is a good thing about Brexit, is it? I, I'm being completely neutral. Okay. I'm just, I, went to the, I went to the nearest pharmacy with a UK prescription, and I said, do you take, I have a UK prescription here. This is all in English, obviously, because everyone speaks very good English here. Yes. I have an English uh, prescription. Is it okay? And she said, only from Denmark and the EU. So I said, okay, that's fair enough. And walked out. And I thought in many ways that's so much fairer for the Danish pharmacists that they don't have to deal with Us. tourists from the UK. Yeah. So I so the the benefit is to Danish pharmacists. Yes. Sadly, I'm gonna have to wait till I get yeah. back home. I think I think the but. Danish pharmacists were first on um Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage's mind when they when they really pushed this through. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg was really thinking about about them as well because, as we know, he you know that's he spends a lot of time worrying about those Danish pharmacists. Yes, that's right. Anyway, I love them all, and I can see you kind of dis I can see you in our studio, which is a very strange thing. And I just have a Scandi white wall behind me. It's, so hopefully, if you're watching this on YouTube, that that explains everything. It's very weird. I'm sitting here in the studio, looking across an empty desk. And then up on the wall, like Big Brother in that film of 1984, is your face. And then there's a tiny, tiny little thumbnail of my face. So it looks like it looks like Frank Sidebottom and Little Frank, to be honest. I think I saw Maz Magelson in the queue for Depeche Mode, by the way. Well, genuinely, or that's a joke? Well, he looked he looked vague. I mean, to be honest, a lot of middle-aged Danes look like Maz Magelson, or they're trying to look like him. But I I almost went up and did an interview. For him, because it would have helped with him, because it would have helped the show. Well, it also don't you think? It, this also leads nicely into the fact that there is an interview this week, which is with the director of the new film that he, that he is in, which is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. The, the interview was to have been done by you, but obviously yes. you're stuck in wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen, salty old queen of the sea, and so in the yes. instead it was done by me. So I'd like to apologise for that in advance because that's not re no, it's not have, really my forte. It'll have many, many um, insights, and of course, this is uh, Indiana Toby Jones. Indiana Toby uh, Jones. Is, I did. Yes. I did tell James Mangold that the most important that the film did have a proper star in it, and that was Toby Jones. And did he react well to? That? Yeah, he loves he, he loves Toby Jones, but then I've never yet met anybody who doesn't love Toby Jones. I also got uh, I also got a message this morning from Hello to Jason Isaacs, saying oh, right. saying that he's now filming. Um, but the place that he's filming is half an hour away from from where I would be. And he said he can't possibly sit in a car that long to come and visit me. 
No, I mean, I think when you get to be a superstar of Jason's levels, you know, that's entirely... Yeah. It could have been helicopter. By the way, on the Mads Mikkelsen thing, who plays the who plays like the Nazi baddie in... Um, Jürgen Wola. Jones. Um, I, it is the general synopsis, general kind of understanding, the general consensus here, by which I mean I've spoken to my son about it, <laughs> that the Scandi actors get a lot of Nazi roles because, you know, for understandable reasons, German actors are going, I don't want to... Please, really, do I have to do that? So if you're a super Scandi actor, then you get all these, you get all the Nazi roles. So yeah, if you're, if, if you're, if you're, if you're non-specifically European, you can generally be brought in to play baddies. And so, yes, I mean, I, I was just trying to think, well, you know, Maxwell Siddow, Maxwell Siddow just, if they just wanted somebody who had an accent that wasn't quite, you know, it was just yes. a little bit, just, just get him in, get Max in, he'd be great. I think Scandi is close enough. I mean, I think that's that's pretty much. Anyway, um, I don't know how much longer that all these lines will work. So why don't you tell us what you're going to be doing in this particular tape? I'm going to be reviewing uh, La Syndicaliste, which does Isabelle Huppert. And I'll be reviewing Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And then this is usually when I would throw to, well, I will do anyway, including yes. our special guest. Who's the bloke you spoke James to? James the director of the aforementioned. He's really uh, odd. Yes. On the, and uh, and then uh, extra takes, assuming that we get to extra takes, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, more nonsense. Uh, we can watch list, we can not list. By the way, if you're watching this on YouTube and I'm not quite looking at you, it's because I have a second screen which is slightly off to, you know, and it's owned by the uh, Danish government. So if it goes wrong, it's it's a Brexit bonus. Anyway, uh, the weekend watch this weekend not list five which are great and three you'll hate. Plus bonus reviews from Mark because he's going to be reviewing Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, My Extinction, and also the new Wham documentary. Are you are you a uh, Wham fan? Uh, I I like them. I think they made some very good pop records. Yes, that doesn't quite count. Anyway, uh, one frame back is films with scene stealing sidekicks. Uh, which I'm looking forward to. And you can support us via Apple Podcasts, by the way. Well, head to extratakes.com. Are we doing scene-stealing sidekicks because devices. Toby Jones steals Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? Is that what? Is that why we're doing that? Um, you're closer to the to the uh, centre of uh, power. That's why we're doing it. Yes, it's because Toby Jones. That's what, it's an Indiana Jones, okay. yeah. Toby Jones. Because Toby Jones steals but, everything. Anyway, um, that's all to come in this particular take and in the other take, which has already uh, landed. Uh, if you're already a Vanguard Easter, obviously, as always... Completely out of sync here. We, we salute, salute you. you. When you say the other there take has already landed, that's assuming that this line holds up for long enough. So, yes, get your chickens. That's true. Plus, oh, I haven't been able to print off anything, so I'm I'm scrolling <laughs> down on this Danish government laptop, which is moving as fast as BBC. Can I just ask, uh, why are you on a Danish government laptop? Do you? I, well, you know, it's a lot. It's it's a very it's a very Long Does Child that. One not? Child One is a young person of the world. Does he not just have millions of laptops just lying around? Anyway, here's an email which says, <laughs> That's um, "No, then, dear, okay. dear short and round." Who's this? It's from Slim Jim. Okay, Slim Jim Phantom. Um, I, uh, I don't think so. I am writing in regard to a previous piece of correspondence in which the Terminator was shown to an eight-year-old. Yes, remember I this. I do. I would like to chime in with an anecdote regarding a phenomenon that I have just invented named indirect cinepressionable consequence disorder, ICPCD. When I, which actually is a word in Danish, I think. It means no sandwiches and no feeding of the birds under any circumstances. When I was in primary school, my younger brother, who has Down syndrome, and I were babysat by a family friend's teenage boy, already problems at that point. Right. Why would you ever get a family friend's teenage boy to babysit your children? Anyway, to entertain himself and indeed us, he rifled through the videos that we had on the shelf and he came across our box set of the original three Indiana Jones films. For some unimaginable reason, he chose the Temple of Doom. All was fine and dandy for the first however long until he got to the scene in which some poor devil is tortured, subjected to an amateur cardiac excision and burnt alive-ish at the hands of a bald man with a funny hat on. The cinepressionable consequence of this was a difficult night's sleep for me. For my brother, however, it had... Uh, sorry, just scroll too far. <laughs> for my brother, however, it had more galvanizing and somewhat more troubling effects. A day or so later, my parents, still unaware that we'd watched the movie, 
received a call from my brother's school saying that Ted had spent his playtime trying to rip the hearts out of his friend's chests. <laughs> he, he would then hold the imaginary organ above his head and yell, I've got his heart, before pretending to eat it and saying, mmm, mm. yummy. I would like, therefore, to suggest that it was not me and my brother who suffered from ICPCD, but my brother's friends who were confronted with the sharp end of the reenactment. You'll be glad to hear that all of the parties involved survived, and indeed one of the victims recently got married, <laughs> to which Ted was invited. There seemed to be no lasting effects, although having seen the pictures, the pudding at the reception was served in something that looked a lot like the skull of a rhesus macaque. I'm sure it was just a coincidence, though. Anyway, thank you for the wonderful work. And remember, always keep your monkey brains refrigerated. Yes. Best served chilled, says Slim Jim. Yeah. The chilled monkey brains thing, in I mean, Temple of Doom is a weirdly misjudged film. Even if you were old enough to have seen it, it's still, I mean, Spielberg himself has said this, that looking back at it, they got it wrong. They, they, they just, you know... There are things in that film that are really, really properly nasty. I mean, including the chilled monkey brains, which is the thing that almost everybody remembers. Very, very odd. Then again, the first film ends with scary angels melting the faces off Nazis. So, but it's okay because they're Nazis. Got an email here from uh, Toby Jones brackets. Not, not that, that one. Okay. So, uh, dear, let it be and leave it be. Uh, like the good doctors, I was pleasantly surprised to see the mighty Sanjeev Bhaskar mm -hmm. of this parish rock up in the new DC offering of The Flash yep. at the weekend. My reaction made me think that whilst Jason has his own greeting, see fine branded drinking vessels for details, uh, see the podcast and live show regular and sometimes substitute, Sanjeev Pascal is missing out. Any Sanjeev related appearance is guaranteed to brighten anyone's day. So with that in mind, for myself at least from now on, whenever I see him or hear him anywhere, I will say to myself what I said rather too audible a volume, I think, in the cinema during the screening of The Flash. Hurrah, it's Sanji. <laughs> As for the film itself, I rather enjoyed the first half. Beyond that, the eye-bashing CGI and increasing annoyance of Ezra Miller's sub Bill and Ted dude shtick were not sufficiently offset by the Easter eggs and fan references to alleviate the unnecessary length of the film. Mike, Michael Keaton was great, though. Hello to Jason, up with one thing, down with the other, and hurrah, oh, it's, it's Sanji. Says Toby Jones um, from Showbiz North London. So I think that's not a bad idea. So whenever you hear Sanjeeva on something or see him in something, or if you see him in the shops or on the tube, you shout lustily, hurrah, it's Sanji. What do you think? I think it's good. I, I, I'm going to discourage it being shouted out loud in cinemas. I mean, I think that the, the emailer was correct to do it the internal, the internal monologue, hurrah, it's Sanjeev. The thing I'm wondering is, it's, you know, Jason wandering around in the world, people come up to him and go, hello to Jason Isaacs. I'm just wondering what the effect on Sanji's, li Sanji's life will be if he wanders around in the world to a constant chorus of hurrah, it's Sanjeev. I mean, I'm, well, I, should it, we try? It can only should, be affirming, can't it? Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, yes, affirming, bordering on the... Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let's give it a go. Okay, so yes. for, a, for a trial period, and we haven't run this past Sanjeev, but... You know, we don't have the technology to do that. It's amazing that I'm actually talking to Copenhagen. So for a trial period of two weeks, if anyone sees Sanjeev in anything or in the flesh, try hurrah at Sanjeev. And if Sanj then yes. texts us and says, would you mind withdrawing this because it's driving me nuts, then we will do so. Yes. Okay, so we'll do this for a, for a limited offer period only. I told you that J Jason Isaac said to me that he, when he met Alan Parker, the, the very famous uh, film director, he was introduced to him and he said, you know, Sir Alan Parker, this is Jason Isaacs. And Sir Alan Parker said, what, as in hello to Jason Isaacs? <laughs> there you go. Famous for something anyway. Yeah. Correspondence at Kermanameo.com uh, if you want to take part. Correspondence at Kermanameo.com. Uh, by the way, the, the microphone that I'm using here, the one that belongs to Embro Running Club Copenhagen, is called a Thronmax, which Thron for all the world is a character. Yes, a character in Lord of the Rings, at least. But it's a Thronmax microphone. It's not a Charlie's Thronmax. No, no, but that would work. Anyway, um, correspondence to Kevin uh, give us a review of something mighty. Okay, La Syndicaliste, which is a French film, the title of which means The Trade Unionist. This is directed by Jean-Paul Salomé, 
re-teaming with Isabelle Huppert, with whom he, he made a film called La Daronne, which over here was released as Mama Weed, which is a, a, not a great title. Anyway, this is based on the true story of Maureen Kearney, who, of whom I had not heard before, trade union activist in France. Had you heard of Maureen Kearney? Uh, no, I'm no, afraid Okay. Not. So an Irish woman living in France, although actually from the, from the, I only found the, the Irish roots thing uh, later on because obviously Isabelle Huppert's performance is in French and I have no idea whether or not Isabelle Huppert is doing an accent or indeed what that accent would be. So the film opens in the aftermath of a horrible attack. She is found, uh, 2012, found in her house by her cleaner, bound, gagged, violated, I think is the only word to use. The story then goes back to the period before leading up to the attack. She's the head union representative for a French multinational nuclear company. And when her boss is replaced, she discovers these secret plans to do a deal with Chinese, which will have huge implications for all the workers that she represents. And she tries to to blow the whistle on the deal. And when she does so, she starts receiving threats, threatening phone calls. Her family start to think that they're being followed. And then the attack we started with. In the aftermath of the attack, she is calm and composed. I mean, actually, I was reminded of the uh, of, of Elle, which again is, is Isabelle Huppert, in which she plays a character who is refusing to be to, to to act like a victim. And the police start to think that her reactions aren't uh, aren't normal, aren't what you would expect. They also can't find evidence of the attack and. All too quickly, she goes from being somebody who has been attacked to somebody who is being investigated for having given false witnesses a very specific offence in France. The, the film's inspired by an essay of the same name by Caroline Michelle Aguirre. And um, the director cites uh, films like Clute and All the President's Men, which are like, you know, political thrillers, American political thrillers, as influences. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't know this story before. And the story is really uh, very, very alarming. Isabelle Huppert is terrific in the lead role, as she always is. I mean, I've never seen Isabelle Huppert give anything other than a note-perfect performance. And I was reading this thing that the, the director wrote about it, saying it's a drama that frightens through its clinical approach to themes, such as the place of women in spheres of power, the importance granted to their speech, and the assumption of their madness and their manipulative behavior, which is kind of the thing that's at the heart of the film. I mean, on the one hand, it's a story about a whistleblower and you can see links to things like, uh, you know, um, you can see, like I said, you can see links to those political thrillers that he cited. But it is also about what happens when you have a powerful woman in a largely male-dominated workplace who starts to speak out of turn and the way in which the world around them reacts. And an awful lot of it is to do with the fact that as far as everyone around her is concerned, she is not behaving in the way she should do if the story that she's telling is true. Now, in case people don't know the story, and I didn't, so I didn't know where it was going. And obviously you can look it up. It's a real life story. It is a fairly alarming real life story about her then subsequent legal battle. But the drama is very gripping. It's well directed. Um, there, I really did not know which way the story was going at all. And personally, I felt found that that actually worked for the drama. Although, of course, this is a real life story with real life consequences, with a real life outcome. And so, you may wish to to find out about the real life outcome in advance. Um, and Isabelle Huppert is just Isabelle Huppert just continues to be she just never puts a foot wrong. She is a really, really fine actor and she kind of carries the film and it's called La Syndicaliste. La Syndicaliste. Yep. Um, the, okay. Literally Still, the trade unionist. That's about, La Syndicaliste sounds more powerful, do you know? Yeah, no, it's a, which is why I think they've kept that title because I think it is a really good title as opposed to Mama Weed, which is not, okay. <laughs> which is not yeah, such which a great not, title. No, no, indeed not. Okay, still to come. Oh, still to come, uh, reviews of uh, Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny with our special guest. Over to you. Well, you spoke to him. I know, but this is how we do it in the thing. And I can't, now can't see you because the, the internet connection has now gone down. All I can see now is a list of numbers. So over to you. Is it the director of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? The director of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. 
Excellent. James Mangold. James Mangold. Okay, we're going to be back before you can say the life of man is of no greater importance to the universe than that of an oyster. David Hume, who could outconsume Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the curated streaming service Movie. Mark, for our wonderful listeners who already have a movie account, and for those who might be thinking about getting one, could you please tell us what films they can enjoy this May? Certainly, Simon. This month, Movie are launching their Cannes Takeover. You know how much I love Cannes. And in honour of the Cannes Film Festival, which kicks off this month, here is a selection of what they have available to stream in the UK. They have Annette, which is the Leos Carax musical with uh, music by Sparks, which is absolutely wonderful, and Tokyo Gar, which is the film by uh, German director Wim Wenders, who travels to Tokyo to explore the world of one of his cinematic heroes, Yasujiro Ozu. That's Mubi's Can Takeover series. What else? Well, there's also Voila Varda, which is a look back on some of the best of the famous French director. There's Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Bonheur, Vagabond, The Gleaners and I, and The Beaches of Agnes. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit Mayo. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Kermit Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. Okay, so let's do the box office top 10 at 21, the Super 8 Years. Uh, which I thought was okay. I didn't think it was quite as good as people who love it do. It's, you know, it is essentially a construction of narrative through Super 8 film with voiceover. And I thought the voiceover was doing an awful lot of heavy lifting. But I do know people who who, who have enjoyed it. I, I, not so much me. Number 10 is The Boogeyman, which has been hanging around quite well. Hasn't yeah, it? it's done well. I'm, I still think that it's a, it's a very solid mainstream movie. I, I prefer it when this director who you spoke to, you can still hear the thing on a pre previous pod, is allowed to do something slightly more off the wall, but it's 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 done good, solid mainstream business. Fast 10 is at nine. So this must be now in its kind of final week, probably in the top 10, but it has done astronomically well. One of the most expensive movies ever made. I was just looking at the the adjusted for inflation uh, list recently, and it's, you know, it it's up there in the top end of movies. I'm, it, we still have more to come. That's the thing is that the story hasn't finished yet. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is at number 8. Surprising how well it's done considering how dark it is. Greatest Days at 7. Which you have now officially reassessed. Yes, uh, on the basis that I sort of, it all kind of clicked into place in the final uh, lap. And I should flag up that on take two, we'll be reviewing, because obviously The Greatest uh, Days is, uh, it, well, it's it's not take that, but it is take that, but it's not take that, but it is take that. And in take two, we'll be reviewing the Wham! documentary, the Netflix Wham! documentary. Number six is Transformers Rise of the Beast. It's not as good as Bumblebee, but it is better than the other ones that Michael Bay directed. The Little Mermaid is at five. Worth it just for how much it's annoyed the idiots. Uh, so, yeah, good. And number four is Asteroid City. So now Here here's go. an email from, um, just trying to scroll down with my Danish government computer. Uh, Evie Harker Shaw okay. uh, has sent in uh, an email. I'm just going to flannel. There we go. Okay, thoughts on Asteroid City. I've no intention of trying to change anyone's mind about this film. If anything, I'm sure that if you were to watch it again, 
you would take against it all the more, find it more patience testing, more arch, more full of itself. Rather, I'd like to say that you and I, and this here is a reference to you, Mark, uh, saw different films. The film I saw was charming, funny, poignant, and beautiful. I know that Asteroid City looks like all Anderson's films, and so it is difficult to argue that the aesthetic adds much substance. How can a style that's persistent and unwavering also be particular or illuminating? How can a compulsive style be heartfelt? I don't know exactly. The same style that was relentless and tripping in Grand Budapest was here more still, more engaged, more encouraging. Uh, with a few exceptions, the cops and robber chases being the most regrettable, the look of the film was attentive, considerate, and curious, which did much to balance out its main character's emotional constipation. I found the style tailored and not just elegant, but resonant. I didn't mind the actor's studio sections as you did, but if they comprise your predominant memory of the film, I can understand your displeasure. My main memory is of two windows facing each other from two cabins. I remember the two people talking between those windows. I liked listening to those people. I remember a Chanel bottle. I remember Scarlet being excellent elsewhere. I also remember having new fluttering feelings for Adrian Brody. I remember Maya Hawke's foot tap back when Rupert Friend appeared stage right. I remember three daughters, a vampire, a witch, and a fairy. Many of these things feel incidental, some of them certainly incidental. But this is a film where incidental is important, and I found it delightful, says Evie Harkershaw. And, you know, you're not alone. There's an awful lot of people who like Asteroid City very much. And as I, I think I said at the time, if you are a Wes Anderson fan, it's the most Wes Anderson film that he's ever made. And you know, and it's entirely possible that you'll that, that, that you'll love it. Um, this this is kind of strange thing around this, which is that um, uh, in a way the movie is kind of quite marmite. I know many people who love it, and I know many people who who really don't like it very much. And I'm I'm in the, the latter camp. Well, I think it's you know it's well crafted and it's very Andersonian. The thing I don't quite get is the, and it's, this is absolutely not in that email because that email was totally very beautiful and measured and, and very well argued. There is a certain chippiness um, among Wes Anderson fans um, to people who haven't liked Asteroid City because the film has proved kind of somewhat divisive. I mean, I think when, when, you, when it was French Dispatch, it was just like different matter. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, uh, the film reminded me of Mars Attacks, which I liked a lot more. And there's my favourite bit in Mars Attacks is when Jack Nicholson, as whatever it is, president of, you know, wherever, America or the world, I can't remember, says, you know, little people, can't we all just get along? And and I I kind of feel, I it's it's an odd film to be irate about. I suppose that's the, that's the thing. But um, yeah, uh, many Wes Anderson fans love it. And I'm, that's a good thing. If you, you know, if you're a Wes Anderson fan, you know what you're going to get. I have loved some Wes Anderson movies. I have not loved some other ones, you know, but hey, little people, can't we all just get along? Number three is no hard feelings. So uh, an email here from uh, David Thompson. Uh, while I completely understand how some may see the premise and casting of the film as weird and disgusting, I feel the film is very open about what's going on in the trailer and the many posters I've seen around. I've grown up laughing my way through gross-out films such as American Pie, Road Trip, The Interview, and Longshot can appreciate them for what they are. I agree and are absolutely happy, uh, sorry, and obviously happy that times have changed in society in terms of what's appropriate and not appropriate in the workplace and in general conversation. However, on a movie screen, when watching a film where you've had the opportunity to see the trailer and research what you're getting yourself into, I must, <clears throat> I must protest, excuse me, are these films masterpieces? Absolutely not. Are they funny to a certain audience? Yes. And what's more, not a multiverse in sight. I actually found the movie to be much sweeter than I originally expected it to be and would recommend it to a wider audience than I originally thought. On the troublesome scale, it's nowhere near Nymphomaniac or even Rushmore in terms of what the leads are portraying. And I'd love to hear why Mark found this troubling and uh, last year's Licorice Pizza, a film which is totally different and has a much more troubling age gap to be totally fine. Anyway, tinkety-tonk up with blue hair and down with orange-faced toilet readers. David Thompson Well, on No Hard Feet. Yes, I mean, we discussed the licorice pizza thing um, a lot. We did. 
And uh, and the general feeling was that there isn't actually a right or wrong answer to that because some people, I mean, I I, I absolutely love that film, but there are people who ha- who, who object to it for, for very good and uh, very well-expressed reasons, and that is perfectly fine. I think the problem with no hard feelings isn't that, you know, you, you, you I find it objectionable. I think the problem is it's tonally all over the place. Now, in terms of the way it's sold, there actually has been a little bit of controversy about whether or not the trailer, I mean, there's more than one trailer, but whether or not the trailer sort of selling it as a gross-out comedy was doing it an injustice. And there there was a, a kind of debate about exactly what the trailer should attempt to be selling. I still think that the main problem with it is, is that the two leads appear to be in different films. One of them appears to be in a film about an independent, uh, free-spirited young woman who knows what she wants and, you know, and then the other one appears to be a completely caricatured figure who seems to have walked out of a movie like Revenge of the Nerds. And, um... I think that that was, the, I mean, also, you know, as I said, it, you know, it nods towards Ferris Bueller and it, and it obviously takes riffs from Risky Business, which are films that are just, you know, that some people like them, some people don't. I don't think the problem with No Hard Feelings is, 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 is I mean, I felt awkward all the way through. I felt uncomfortable all the way through it. But, you know, the, the, the tagline is pretty awkward. I found it was pretty awkward. It has gone in at number three, which is for a, you know, for an original comedy is a solid showing. So, it's done fine and great. If you if you saw it and you enjoyed it, that's that's really good. I it, it just didn't work for me. The Flash is at number two. <laughs> I mean, <sighs> the Flash. I imagine that an awful lot of people who see the Flash feel the same way as I think both you and I did, which is there are things in it that are that are that are fun. There are things. I mean, I actually like Michael Keaton's performance as the washed up Batman. I think that works well. It does turn into smashy bashy crashy. There are some unforgivably shonky visual effects in it. And, you know, again, we're in the same position that that's at number two. And at number one is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And if you look at what those, sorry to just to steal your thunder on that, but if you look at those two movies back to back, one of them is a multiverse movie that, that makes the multiverse exciting and interesting. And another is a multiverse movie that I think makes it exhausting and exasperating. Uh, and thank you for the correspondence about Shonky VFX, which uh, we will get to. We haven't got time to get to it at the moment, but we will get to it um, at some stage. Thank you very much for the emails to correspondence at Um uh, Back in a moment, Mark has spoken to James Mangold's Indiana Jones conversation after this. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, questions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash kermode. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with rooftop experiences located at Bussy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally, and more recent films like Challengers and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E. 24. Visit rooftopfilmclub.com. Hey. 
So now, uh, welcome back. As I'm stranded in Denmark this week, as I've mentioned, Mark stepped into the hot seat to interview this week's guest, the director of Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny, the fifth installment in the franchise. He is James Mangold. You'll also uh, know him as the director of Heavy, uh, The Wolverine and Logan, among others. Mark's interview with James after this clip. Water displacement. Get in the pool! Well, they didn't get out the doors. Get in the pool. Hey, who's getting in the pool? Help me. Archimedes was fascinated by water displacement. That was a clip from Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm thrilled to be joined by its director, James Mangle. James, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. So the film plays out in two worlds, the end of World War II and uh, 1960s. Invite us into the it world. It actually plays in three worlds, but... It, but we can't say we that. We can't say that, but yeah. I just did. Well but, done. You, but well done. And, and all the time, it's the critics who get told, don't give spoilers away. Yeah, but I didn't give away a spoiler. Okay. I just merely talked theoretically about the time realms that the movie takes That it might play out. That it might play out. Okay, so introduce us to the world of the film. I guess this is how I do it. I'd say that when I came onto this project, it seemed to me it still was without a script that had become solid. Yeah. So the first task at hand was to try and figure out what is this movie about and what do we have to say? And it seemed to me, knowing my leading man was in his late 70s, that it was kind of a hero who finds himself at sunset, but also a hero who has always been focused on time himself. He is himself a man who is always looking backward um, into historical past, but may have his own life and history may be catching up with him in some way. And so that became, that, that told me that I wanted to start the movie in a way in 1944, what I'd call the golden uh, Indiana Jones period, so we could give the audience a taste, even more than a taste, of of a fresh sequence in the tradition of Indiana Jones movies, these opening sequences that almost feel like the the end of a previous movie. Give Give the audience that, but also use it as a kind of cinematic opportunity for my favorite cut in the film, which is as you round out the adventure in 1944 with a young Indiana Jones, you cut quite quietly to 1969 in New York City and come upon Indiana Jones in his 70s. And that change and that contrast, a man in his prime in a kind of golden age period chasing Nazis in the great war of wars where all things were simple, good guys, bad guys, our sense of right and wrong, with golden age music playing, wearing a fedora, all the aesthetics we know of from Indiana Jones to finding ourselves in a more modernist time with a man who may feel out of time. You and I first met in a previous century when you'd made <laughs> Heavy, and um, and you're approaching 60, and I'm very fast approaching 60. How much of this is to do with you? Myself? Yeah. I think I've been a kind of focused on being old, since I, I mean, in a way, Heavy is almost a similar film in the sense of a kind of character who who very much is at least pushing 50 at that point and kind of finding he hasn't lived his life yet. And the next movie about a kind of sheriff in middle age, Copland, kind of at yeah. this point where he spent his whole life doing kind of the wrong thing and is faced with this last moment. I'm very fascinated by time and age and the choices left behind us that we, the road's not taken and how those regrets haunt us. I guess I'm also fascinated by how much movies in general try and avoid these questions, at least American movies, and their focus on youth and, and our heroes generally are absent of flaws or vulnerabilities. So even, you know, in my case, when I made Logan, um, it also became a, a different, certainly more grim meditation on on the last chapter of a, of a hero's life. But it also was a kind of meditation on the past catching up with you and 
it's something fascinating to me and something film is uniquely equipped to explore because of its unique relationship with time. It is. Films are more than just images and acting. They are time itself on a spool, unwinding. And how how was the act of turning back time by de-aging Harrison Ford for those early scenes? Because I have no idea what that must feel like on set to do. On set, it's just Harrison acting younger and <laughs> in and spry, and and when it's something he can't possibly do in a young fashion, having someone else do it. But but the whole concept is is to just I just shot it piece by piece like any other movie. It's just that his head and and the way he was driving his performance came out of whatever Harrison was doing and was projected through this technology into his younger self. The film obviously stars Harrison Ford. However, you have one of the greatest movie stars of our time in it, Toby Jones. Now, I am the world's biggest Toby Jones fan. In fact, I had the privilege of going to college with Toby Jones, so I still can't believe it every time I see him on a massive screen. Tell me about Toby Jones and working with him because and say only good things. No, I love <laughs> I love that you said that. I love him. And I think his spirit, you love him the moment you meet him on screen. From the moment he turns into a close-up, you adore the heart of this character. I've seen him do a million things always well. I thought we were so blessed when we got him on board. And he's such a joy to work with. I can't think of anything negative to say with about Toby Jones, if you could give me a prize for doing so. I just adore him. He's one of the people in America, you call them character actors. Here we just call them actors. Every time you see him in a different role, he looks like a completely different person. I think that's Yeah, he's a miracle. But, you know, I also, that's my kind of actor. I mean, it's even why I love Harrison so much is he may be a leading man, but he is, in the American terminology, a character actor. He's always looking to undermine his leading man-ness. You know, one of the really interesting experiences working with Harrison that was really, it was clear to me as we were working on the script and in prep, but really became crystal clear once I was on set with him every day, directing him is that he arrives every day, you know, we get these things we call our sides, which are this kind of mini version of the day's work to hold in our pocket and um, in script form. And Harrison will be fumbling through the sides of the day. And I can see what he's doing, that the gears are spinning in his mind. How can I undermine this scene? I don't mean undermine it like in a bad way. I mean, <laughs> undermine its obviousness or or make the scene more messy or complex or human. This is not what all leading men do. Yeah. He's always looking, and Indiana Jones is the perfect example of it. He's a hero, but he's always a hero who is sometimes falls into the right move. Um, his punches often don't land. He often makes turns the wrong corner and has to correct himself. Harrison loves his character making mistakes. He loves his character's foibles. He loves to get lucky that Indiana Jones kind of just gets lucky and survives. And he also loves his anxieties. You know, uh, Indiana Jones is kind of a a socially awkward character who's never really managed to have a strong relationship yeah. last very long. He's uh, He avoids students, avoids attachments, loves just books and being on his own. All these are not the typical attributes of a quote-unquote hero, but Harrison manages to weave them all together and has throughout his career, not just in this role, but many, as this tapestry of humanity, human foibles, that make us even more endeared to his hero than than other than other actors might be who are playing some kind of perfect specimen. So what does it bring to the table when you put that alongside Phoebe Waller-Bridge? What energy does that bring to it? Harrison and Phoebe are very similar characters and talents. She's formidable creatively. And I think one of the astounding talents of the, of the last decade to emerge. And I mean, when the, this opportunity of, of regarding this film first came to my door and I began puzzling over what I would do with the story. And we talked about this idea of Indy having a goddaughter who comes out of his past and kind of comes to find him. It it was instantly Phoebe to me. I I was admittedly just completing watching the second season of Fleabag at the time (laughs) that this movie uh, landed with me. Phoebe is such a modern creative force 
but she's also classically old school to me. She reminds me of Kate Hepburn or Barbara Stanwyck or kind of verbal, whip-smart, capable, independent, maybe a little dangerous, maybe even will destroy you, but you'll fall in love with her nonetheless. A really remarkably complex series of, of braided uh, elements that are both a part of her and a part of what she brings to the screen. And I felt like she'd be a handful for Harrison, which is always, uh, with an actor like him, that's what you want, is you basically want to just put the very best tennis opponent you can uh, to hit the ball and put some spin on it. And no mutt in the story, which some might be surprised at. Well, mutt is in the story. What? But I understand. Yes. Um, I'm not sure anyone will be surprised, honestly. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think, well, okay, fine. So in terms of the, the balance between the, you know, the roller coaster ride, which we expect from Indiana Jones, and the characterization which you're talking about, and like as I said, when we first talked, it was, you know, little independent films. Is it hard to balance that? Is it ever a battle? Or is it just these two things can run along on separate tracks? Well, I definitely say that I wouldn't want my first movie to be a movie at this scale. <laughs> um, that there are, there, you know, making, having made, while I've never made a movie as large as this, making movies that are large in scope and nature and budget and travel, et cetera, visual effects, you do begin to learn how to manage what is effectively a gigantic operation. Uh, Just logistically. Yes. But you realize there's one part that you, that you really, um, that doesn't change, you know, there's one part that doesn't change from heavy to Indiana Jones and everything in between. You arrive in a room, not unlike this one with a few actors and a camera and you got to move them around and make the scene work and break it into units that we can understand and make each shot, at least by my standards, have value and know why why this shot, why that shot. I try not to just smear the scene with angles. Yeah. And the, but that heavy, every a girl interrupted, walk the line, Le Mans 66, Indiana Jones, I still arrive each day having to make something happen in a space yeah. with actors. And all the scale of what's outside the walls of that set, how many trucks, how many cranes, how many stuntmen, or the scale of the sets, it all kind of vanishes under that simple, basic job I have of, of making, trying to make with the actors something lifelike and enjoyable and entertaining and moving happen. Our time's ending up. Let me ask you one last thing. The Butterworths, who are, you know, formidable writers, how do you write with them? Do you write in a room or do you write separately? How does it work? Uh, separately, but together. I, I'd say that the, <laughs> um, the, the that was unique in this movie because it was born in the pandemic. And so Jez and John Henry live here in London, and I'm on the West Coast of America. So almost all our time was spent, in ex as most of the world, in extended Zoom yeah. calls. But uh, you'd worked with them before, in which yes, you were on, physically on Ford together. Ferrari, yeah. Le Mans 66. And we have a great relationship and a sense of, of each other's taste and... Uh, instincts. And it was a joy working with them on this in a kind of laboratory of just, um, because when we started, we kind of had an idea that the movie was going to be about time and, and this hero at sunset and um, other elements, but we were, we felt our way through the story and, and let the story un speak to us and kind of tell us where it was going. And, um, they're real artists and they're, they're fearless. And what I mean, and I say that that's true about Harrison and Phoebe as well. I love people who both understand the responsibility and magnitude of what they're doing, but they also understand that in some ways to ever succeed at making these things, you have to kind of put all of that out of your mind. You can never, you can't win a football game if you're thinking about how important the game is. You have to win the game by thinking about the ball. And that in the end, Jez and John Henry were thinking about the ball. We we're thinking about how to write, how to construct scenes we hadn't seen before or characters we hadn't seen before in situations that seemed inviting and intoxicating and fun. Because that's the other aspect I think we really enjoyed in the writing process is that action adventure movies, and I don't say this 
with any disdain because I participate in it. Many action adventure movies are kind of brutalist affair. They're very <laughs> assaultive. And there's a kind of grimness of message to the modern action adventure or even superhero movie. Indiana Jones, I think part of what we miss about the films and part of what Jez and John Henry and I tried to capture in crafting the narrative was that these are charming films and kind of as much about eccentric character as they are about the scale of the visuals and that the hero doesn't always know what to do or have the right tool in his belt or can't always jump from here to there successfully, that it's not about kind of the physical perfection of the character. It's about the humor and the humanity in the interplay of all this eccentricity of character with all this scale. And that's not what we created. That was the formula that Larry Kasdan and Stephen and George created and Harrison from the beginning of this wonderful friction between uh, a character piece that was played out on such a grand scale at the same time. James, thank you for your time. And in advance, happy 60th birthday. To you as well, Mark. (laughs) Thank you. Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help, I Sexted My Boss. And on Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want an evening full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen. Help, I Sexted My Boss live is showing everywhere and everyone's welcome. Go to sexedmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. That's sexedmyboss.com slash cinema. Hello, Kermit and Mayo listeners. We want to tell you about another show you're going to love, Dinners on Me with Jesse Tyler Ferguson. You may know Jesse as Mitchell on Modern Family or for his Tony Award-winning performance in Take Me Out on Broadway. Each week, Jesse takes a different celebrity guest out to eat at a restaurant chosen just for them. No repeats. Past guests include Sofia Vergara, Brian Cranston, Mandy Moore, Chelsea Clinton and Ed O'Neill. More than 30 episodes are available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And that is James Mangold talking to Mark because I was not available, uh, hopefully briefly. Who knows when I'm going to make it back. Anyway, uh, we watched, I kind of know a lot about what you think about Indiana Jones because I was uh, watching it with you. Anyway, but having done the, having had the conversation, tell us what you thought of the movie. Well, I think that both you and I are on the same page about this. So we sat and we watched um, Dial of Destiny together and we saw it on the IMAX screen. So, you know, great big uh, romping experience. And I think if you're going to go and see it, that's the way to see it because it is in many ways for all its, uh, you know, up to the minute de-aging, which... I know there's, there's been some debate about this. I actually thought the de-aging stuff was done rather... Did you think the de-aging stuff with Harrison... I, I was kind of convinced no, by it. Were you not? No. Uh, you, I you mean, okay. uh, it, it's better than it, it used to be, but he, he looked like a, a, a figure in a computer game. The, and the worst bit is where young Indy is running across the roof of uh, the top of a train, and it, it, it just looks like it's been... Uh, it looks like a piece of animation. So I, so I, I was kind of... Out of, I was kind of out of sorts, I think, by okay. being disappointed about it. Okay. I wasn't, because I actually thought that stuff, worked, well, it was just, it demonstrates that two people sitting right next to each other in a cinema can see, or, you know, essentially different things. We also saw this back to back with, um, with another film, which is a, which is an action adventure film, which was, which was a real edge of the seat experience. And I think the thing with uh, Indiana Jones is that it's got, a kind of nostalgic affection that isn't to do with absolutely nail-biting, uh, you know, actually, I mean, yes, there are, you know, great big romping things. There are car chases, there's there's bikes, there's the, the stuff at the, with the train at the beginning. There's the two separate uh, time periods working. But at the heart of it is a character that you have been with for a long time to whom there is a huge amount of affection. And I think the headline thing is to say that Harrison Ford sort of earns that. I mean, Harrison Ford has reprised, you know, Han Solo and Rick Deckard in later life incarnations, and he's done it really well. And in the case of this, the film wouldn't work if you didn't have somebody as innately likable on screen as the central character that he has created. I think the very fact that he's managed to create those three really important genre heroes 
is a is a great testament to him. I mean, there is a there's a lot of stuff going on at the beginning, as you know, James Mangle was saying in the in the interview with, between you know Indy in his prime and Indy now. I mean, now the thing that he resembles most closely is the old guy from Up. When you first meet him, he's literally like that grouchy mm. character banging on the neighbor's door and saying, "Can you stop making all this noise?" Toby Jones steals every single scene that he is in, um, and he's having a whale of a time doing it. And there's there are very few people who can who can invest, you know, what's a, a role which it, it would always be in danger of going towards the pantomime, but just get the tone of it completely right. And I think that every minute that Toby Jones is on screen, you think, this is great. It's so brilliant to see him. And obviously the, the fact that we saw it on the IMAX screen, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen Toby that big. It was, it, that was, you know, terrific. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is bringing This is daughter, let's, let's, which is stretching things, I think. His goddaughter. Oh, God. She's, daughter. She's, oh, Toby Jones. Toby Jones's daughter. Yes, yes Toby. No, she's Toby Jones's character's daughter, right. but she's Indy, she's Indy's god right. goddaughter. But the way that's set up is essentially because she's his goddaughter, there is a kind of familial relationship, which means that as they go off on this quest around the world, they can do that family infighting, even though she's technically not family, but she's a goddaughter, yeah. and there's a whole thing about, yeah, oh yeah, because you've been so great as a role model as my godfather, and, and where have you been? Meanwhile, behind all of this, like the shark from Jaws, is correct my pronunciation, Maz Mikkelsen. Tell me how to say it Maz again. Maz Magelson. Maz Magelson, as uh, the I'm not a Nazi, I am a Nazi, I'm not a Nazi, but I really am. Not chewing the scenery, but sucking the scenery. He does this thing with his lips, which is kind of, you know, it's it's it is a really. I, I don't know how and what it is, but he does something with his lips that looks like he's kind of siphoning bad air into his system. This kind of poisonous presence who has this, this menace. And it is a kind of shark-like menace. It's sort of quiet and it's floating around in the background. And then you have the set pieces and the set pieces are set pieces. They're not, you know, edge of the sea, heart thumping. You know, That's not what they're about. They're, they are kind of old fashioned. The thing that I ended up thinking was, you know, all this really begins with George Lucas thinking about the serials of the 30s and 40s, the kind of cheapy B-movies. And of course, when Indiana Jones was, when the first when the first Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, it was a comparatively cheap movie for Steven Spielberg. I mean, you know, compared to Close Encounters in 1941, it was a comparatively low-budget movie. It was a way of him getting back to his roots. Now, these movies are, you know, massively huge productions. And yet, Oddly enough, no matter how much they end up costing, in the end, they stand or fall on whether or not you see Indy and a part of you goes, oh. And, you know, I've said, I have gone back and watched the other the other Raiders of Indiana Jones movies. And I, honestly, I, I forgive me, I don't think they're as great as everyone remembers. But I think that there is still that affection for them because at the time... We enjoy, I mean, even at the time, they were nostalgic movies. That's, nostalgia has been written right into the heart of them. So that was always there. Uh, the last act oh, of... Oh, yes, uh, that's what I wanted film. to mention. <laughs> okay, well, so without... without yeah. What would you say about Well, my heart sank, to be honest, you know, because I, I agree with everything that you said. Um, Harrison Ford plays a fantastic character. I've loved the films. You know, you watch them over, over many, many decades. He's entitled to a... Uh, to a final film, but that final act is so depressingly preposterous that I, <laughs> I just, I couldn't wait to. I just, I thought, I thought it was such. A, no, please, come on, really? Oh, oh, right, Jesus is here. Oh, it's not Jesus, but it's someone who's like Jesus. That was. I just thought, oh no, please. Anyway, others, yeah. others may well it, like it. Well, yes, I mean. <laughs> it is in the end with the last act. You are you're either going to go, you know, oh for heavens, <laughs> it was yeah. So it is what it is. I mean, it's a. Uh, it, I think it's a. It's a kind of popcorn nostalgia romp, and Phoebe Waller Bridge is fun. Um, I think that Harrison Ford carries the movie. Toby Jones is terrific. They lucked out with getting such a good villain. The plot is all over the place. I mean, all over the place. But 
it does the thing that you expect. You know, there's the chase on the train. There's the chase in the small car. There's the bit with the thing, and then there's the bit with the and thing, then, and, and then, then there's the and last. Then there's the guy act. who isn't Jesus. <laughs> there's the guy who isn't Jesus, but for for all intents and purposes, might as well be. He's like Harrison Ford's Jesus, basically. That's his own personal <laughs> Jesus by Depeche Mode, who we're here in Copenhagen. Um, He's what, what what Eddie Izzard refers to as Jeezy Cleasy. Now, um, we should, uh, just to be completely honest, the reason why this uh, take is a little bit shorter than normal, for which apologies, is entirely my fault because I genuinely have a plane to catch. So uh, we'll put a bunch of stuff into take two. Uh, we'll make up for it, promise, um, uh, in future weeks. But uh, for the moment, thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you in take two. Take two.